In the past two years, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International and the Israeli NGO Betzalem have all come to the same conclusion. Israel practices apartheid. The idea of Israel as an apartheid state is, of course, nothing new, but the judgment of those free organisations does give the label more weight. And with the Israel-Palestine conflict at a critical juncture, now seems like a good time to explore the comparisons between Israel and the state for which the term apartheid was coined, South Africa. What are the similarities between Israel and apartheid South Africa? Why has Israeli apartheid outlasted the South African version? And what can the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa teach us about prospects for Palestinian liberation today? To answer those questions, I spoke to Andrew Feinstein. Andrew is a Jewish man who grew up in apartheid South Africa and ended up becoming an MP for the African National Congress. That's Nelson Mandela's party. Andrew has also visited Israel-Palestine multiple times and has extensive knowledge of the conflict, so he was a perfect guest for this discussion. As usual, the first half of this interview will be available to all. The second part will be for Patreon subscribers. If you aren't one yet, you can sign up for free pound a month at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Andrew Feinstein, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course. It's great to be with you. Um, we're going to talk about South Africa, Israel, the relationship between the two, what we can learn by looking at apartheid South Africa and looking at at Israel. I suppose I want to start from a more personal angle. Um, so what was it like to grow up as a Jew in apartheid South Africa? I should say that I was in a slightly fortunate position in that my mother was actually Austrian and my father South African. So I grew up sort of between Cape Town and Vienna. And my sister and I described what happened as, as semigrated, sort of every couple of years. Um, my dad would decide that we couldn't live in apartheid South Africa and we'd head to Austria. And three months later, he still wouldn't have learned a word of German and we'd head back to South Africa. So I had the opportunity growing up of not only being in what was an obviously abnormal environment, but actually seeing a slightly more normal environment. Um, there was a lot of racism in Austria at the time, particularly against Turkish guest workers. But, you know, I'd go back to South Africa at sort of age 9, 10, and I'd ask my parents why after sunset there were no black people anywhere around. And my mom, who was a Holocaust survivor, um, spoke to us about racism and its consequences. And so from a very young age, I had an awareness that South Africa was not a normal society. Um, we weren't particularly involved in the Jewish community. Um, my parents were both Zionists, um, had a great affection for Israel. We traveled to Israel quite a bit, um, but we were not part of this sort of formal Jewish community um, if you will, we didn't attend synagogue. Um, we were a secular family, lots of Jewish friends, but, but no sort of formal links to the community. And one did feel the degree of racism. I'll never forget at the age of about 10, my mother who, who drove a mini was taking a whole group of us 
to football practice and we were struggling to get into the car and one boy sort of shouted how do you get 12 jews into a mini throw a half cent piece onto the back seat and my mom sort of recoiled and told him that he'd be walking to football practice he certainly wouldn't be going in her car and i sort of asked her to explain afterwards why she'd reacted like that and she explained to me about anti-semitism and um but it obviously it wasn't sort of top of mind because there was such obvious daily racism that one experienced and i was really fortunate my dad in his sort of younger years had been involved with something called the congress of democrats which was a white congress movement affiliated to the anc and my mom was involved with something called the black sash which was white women who protested against the sort of worst iniquities of apartheid so you were from uh, a family of i suppose leftists can i say leftists yeah they were sort of liberal in the south african context i suppose and you went on to join the anc and become an mp for the party um so could you talk about that sure so from my late teens i started working in squatter camps and black townships around cape town and it became clear to me very quickly that the vast majority of people in the black community saw the ANC as their leaders and saw them as as the leaders of the liberation struggle you know and you pick that up by talking to people by seeing the graffiti um and then i got involved in a particular incident where um a squatter camp of around 70,000 shacks was burned to the ground and you could literally from white cape town because remembering that apartheid south africa was obviously geographically racially divided um so from 10 kilometers away you could see this place burning but you had no idea what was going on the media weren't allowed in white south africans weren't allowed into so-called black group areas um and i took a group of student volunteers i was president of a student welfare agency at the university of cape town and 21 of us in this sort of relief vehicle went into the area to provide food to provide shelter and support to these 70,000 people who'd lost everything and the military and the police didn't want to let us out because we'd seen what they'd been doing so they kept us there for 3 days um and during that time i was invited to a meeting which i just thought was of local activists talking about how to address the situation this emergency in crossroads and i discovered sort of post fact that it was actually a meeting of an anc underground cell and that was my first actual contact with the anc so it was just a very natural progression of my politics i suppose and i got more and more involved in organizations affiliated to the anc something called the anconscription campaign the united democratic front which was a big broad non-racial movement that was effectively the an the sort of legalized anc above ground um and it always felt like my political home so they must have had a fair amount of trust in you right to to invite you to a an anc meeting because it was illegal at the time right yes of course it was an underground illegal banned movement the people who actually invited me to that meeting um who i landed up serving in parliament with very senior people had i i had become president of this welfare agency on a ticket of turning it into a politicized organization 
Previously, it had been something that students almost did for fun. And I didn't think there was anything fun about it. And I believed there was a strong structural political element to development and welfareism in South so was Africa. It, was it a bit like, um, you know, the, you know, people, people take the mick out of it, don't they? But the sort of gap year where someone goes and builds wells for African people, was it that kind it was, of vibe? It was very similar, except there was an even worse component to it in some ways in that students just used to have parties and get drunk to raise money for this work. Um, and the two things were quite closely associated, which I always found slightly offensive. So it was just trying to point out that doing any of this sort of work, that try to ameliorate the worst excesses of the racist system in the here and now immediately, um, th that you had to be aware of the political context and take that into consideration in the work that you were doing. Um, so I think that people within township communities where we worked had had become aware of the sort of approach that I'd brought to the organization, which was a huge departure for it. And I think that's probably the reason that they trusted me. And I mean, we're going to be exploring comparisons between South Africa and Israel. I suppose the most obvious one is the word apartheid. Right. So I mean, it was, it, apartheid comes from apartheid South Africa. It means apartness or separateness in, in Afrikaans. Um, but it's become, it's, it's got this legal definition now, which is recognized by the UN and various human rights groups have said that Israel also practices apartheid. What's your view of that comparison? What similarities do you see in the, the Israel-Palestine situation and your upbringing in, in apartheid South Africa? You know, it's important to state at the beginning, there are obviously quite fundamental differences. Um, the contexts, the composition of the populations in, in Palestine and Israel. Um, in South Africa, you had a black African majority comprising 83% of the people, um, indigenous to the area. But apartheid South Africa was built on a form of settler colonialism. So I think that its historical roots are extremely similar to Israel-Palestine. I think the second thing that is similar is the legislative regimes. Apartheid South Africa was a form of legislated racism where everything about your life was determined by the color of your skin. And, you know, people don't realize the extent of the absurdity of this during apartheid South Africa. It wasn't just that you had to live in a certain area. You were allocated certain types of jobs that you could apply for and others that were just outside the realm. Obviously, educational opportunities, you know, amenities that you could use. But it went to the point of absurdity. For instance, my partner would have been classified in our legislation as Asian. And it would have been illegal for her and I to be alone in a car together in terms of apartheid law. I'm not quite sure what the architects of apartheid thought would happen if a man and a woman from dis different race groups oh, were so that was in a specifically car if it was a man and a it woman. Was specific. So I could have been in a car with um, how what they would have described as a person of color if yeah. it was a man. Because the background here is it, it was, I suppose, one of the earliest actually apartheid laws, wasn't it? That it was illegal to marry or have sexual relations or romantic relations across Races. Across the color line. Yeah. Exactly. And it was I should, ironically... I put races in scare quotes, of course. Absolutely. I mean, in all of these terms that I use, I mean, these are the nomenclature of apartheid, which is the unfortunately the only way one can describe it. But yes, all of that was illegal. It was ironically called the Immorality Act. 
But if I look at certain Israeli legislation, and if I look at the way that people are treated, even Palestinian citizens of Israel itself, let alone Palestinians who live under occupation, there are certain similarities. The nation-state law is remarkably similar to South Africa's Population Registration Act. South Africa's Land Act, very similar to the sorts of prohibitions on Palestinians actually owning land. Um, the discretion of, of the legal and, and judicial systems where people of, of different ethnicities, if you will, are treated differently under the law and in the courts. Then, of course, there is a system of, of Bantustans in South Africa, which was effectively the creation of, of these fragmented little states, 13 in total, where South Africans were supposed to return to these Bantustans depending on the tribe, and I put that in inverted commas as well, that they belong to. Because if you went to Soweto or Guguletu or any of the urban townships of South Africa, and you said to a person, so what tribe do you belong to? They would have looked at you as though you were from another planet. Because that sort of tribal identity, while it is fairly strong in rural areas, has just dissipated in urban areas and has for generations and generations. But they were put in these economically dysfunctional little areas that were ruled by sort of little puppet regimes that had actually no power. Um, and they're very similar to the occupied Palestinian territories. So there are some quite fundamental similarities. But even pursuing the sort of the trajectory of, of those similarities, there are some harsh differences. And amongst those are that I think in certain ways the separateness of Israelis and Palestinians is, if anything, even more extreme in the Israeli-Palestinian context. So, for instance, it shocked me the first time I was in the occupied territories that there are separate roads for Palestinians to use and for Israelis to use. There are separate number plates, so cars are more easily identified. Now, South African apartheid was never quite as efficient as that. I do think that that sort of separateness, though, also had a similar social and cultural manifestation. You know, for instance, um, I was on a trip with South African human rights activists to Israel and then the occupied territories. I was in Tel Aviv. And one evening I was just walking along the beach and I started speaking to a group of young Israelis. And it was as though Palestine and Palestinians didn't exist. You know, someone looked shocked when I asked what contact they have with Palestinians. And they said, well, I don't have contact with Palestinians. But and even because there's, there's two million Palestinian citizens of Israel, aren't there? So yeah. I, mean, it, and is it, I suppose when people talk about apartheid in Israel, apartheid has this legal definition, which means sort of, the, you know, systematic legislation, which... Um, sort of guarantees or aims to increase the domination of one group over another. And I think lots of these human or one racial group over another, and lots of human rights groups sort of say, when we call Israel apartheid, we aren't necessarily saying it's the same as South Africa. What we are saying is that it meets this legal definition. And then what I often hear people sort of say is that in Gaza, in um, you know, within Israel's 67 borders, um, it's apartheid, but it's quite different to South, South Africa. And when you go to the West Bank, the West Bank is quite a lot like apartheid South Africa. I mean, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. So, you know, the differences would be, for instance, the difficulty of getting in and out 
of occupied territories for Palestinians, far worse in Gaza, but also exists in parts of the West Bank, depending on the situation at the time and the sort of cruelty of the treatment in that movement. The reality is that black South Africans could move in and out of Bantustans. There were no borders. There were no gates or fences or, or a military presence of any sort. So in those sort of immediate observable ways, there were fundamental differences where I, th I think that the mindset is incredibly similar. So there were many white South Africans. You must remember at the point at which we became a democracy in 1994 in South Africa, less than 1% of white South Africans had ever been into a black township. But white South Africans had contact with black South Africans every day because the most fundamental difference, in my opinion, between the two situations is that apartheid South Africa relied on the black workforce to keep its economy going. They were the vast majority of the population. They were only allowed to do certain extremely, extremely menial and dangerous, usually dangerous tasks. But the economy was entirely dependent on them, which is not the situation in Israel in relation to the Palestinian community. And I think that's a really important difference. So I have found in my experience that it is possible to meet Israelis who have virtually no contact with Palestinians, regardless of the fact that there are two million Palestinian citizens of Israel. And there were white South Africans who would have the minimum of contact with black South Africans and would treat them in the most appalling ways when they did have that contact. But they were still having a level of daily contact. So, so that for me is a profound difference. So do you think that makes it easier for Israelis to dehumanize Palestinians than it was the case in, in South Africa? Or do you think, you know, the difference is not necessarily that? I mean, I, I suppose white South Africans didn't have any problem dehumanizing indigenous South Africans, even though they spoke to them on a daily basis. They certainly, I mean, you came from a position where it was sort of, it was taught to you, you know, to the vast, vast majority of white South Africans, most of whom would now deny it, obviously. But a profound level of these people were there just to serve you and you were doing them a favor by offering them work that you were paying them anything for even if it was a pittance um, whereas I think in the context of Israel the issue of threat was is, is much more apparent um, and that also has to do with the landmass I mean you're talking about a very small area whereas South Africa is, is a much vaster country um, and you didn't feel that threat in the same way, although there were moments politically when you did. I mean, when I was probably about 11 or 12 um, during the Soweto uprising, when black students refused to be taught in Afrikaans, which they quite correctly saw as the, the language of the oppressor. I mean, we were all in, in my school, which was in a white group area, in Cape Town, thousands and thousands of miles away from Soweto and Johannesburg, we were corralled into the tennis court of our school. And, you know, one of our teachers stood there armed and told us that the communist hordes were, were killing people and that we were being protected and that our parents would come and collect us and take us home. And, you know, we assumed that there were people sort of hundreds of meters away from us rather than thousands of miles. And although the unrest spread, it was very rare that you felt the immediacy of black anger and frustration 
at the apartheid system. Whereas I think in Israel, one does, one can't avoid but to experience that in a more real way. Except again, there is something, and I haven't quite been able to characterize it, that you see people living an extremely good life in a city like Tel Aviv, Israelis, where they've almost forgotten about the existence of Palestinians. And that's what struck me with these young people on the beach in Tel Aviv, um, is how they almost didn't exist for them. And so you think it's easier maybe for the Israelis to forget than it was for the South Africans because the white South Africans, you know, they were always aware of the existence Absolutely. of black Absolutely, and we were so dependent on black people. Um, I want to talk a bit more about this Bantustan issue because, I mean, it, it's often brought up in the context of Israel-Palestine. I mean, not, not by Israelis, but by sort of advocates for Palestinian rights because they sort of compare the West Bank to Bantustans because it's these the, the sort of not real states which are broken up which are not going to be economically viable because you know they're so small it's difficult to get from one to the other and the other reason they sort of talk about bantustans in that situation is because it's to solve the same problem right so the problem for the white south africans was to say we have this landmass where the majority of people are not white but we want white domination so if we are going to all be one state we're not going to be able to call ourselves a democracy because we can't give the black people a vote because then they will take political power and we will lose our, our dominance. So what we have to do is remove the black people from the state so that we can have a democratic South Africa where the whites have a guaranteed majority. And so what they did with the Bantu stands is they say, well, we're going to create you all of these different states and then we're going to forcefully move all the black people to those different states. So then South Africa becomes... Uh, a white democracy which can actually be democratic because they have manufactured a, a, a white majority I mean, it's almost like gerrymandering isn't it how close do you think that comparison is between the bantustans in south africa and um what's going on in the west bank in in israel palestine i think you're exactly the west right. bank sorry palestine i'm not gonna call the west bank israel palestine i think that's exactly right i i think that you know the reality is that the majority of black south africans never actually lived in the bantustan so that's a difference um, so they were allowed movement because they had to move for work. So, you know, there were, there were black people in every urban conurbation in the country. There were black people close to all of the economic infrastructure and particularly, obviously, the mines. But yes, in theory and in law, it gave South Africa the opportunity, one, to claim that it was a democracy, but two, to claim that what we were practicing was a system of equal but separate development, which was extremely important. And the South African regime spent billions and billions of dollars projecting this to the world. You know, we, we discovered in the late 70s that the government had been secretly spending all of these billions on what they called an information campaign, what most people would describe as a disinformation campaign, where at one point they actually owned newspapers in Europe, in the United States, that were basically propaganda vehicles to sell this notion of separate but equal development. And they found support amongst right-wing politicians in Britain, in, the United, in Europe and in the United States. Um, in the case of Israel, because there isn't quite the same economic 
requirement and, and rationale, the brutality of the sort of herding into designated areas and maintaining those designated areas and the way in which Palestinians are treated even in those areas, I think has gone a number of stages beyond apartheid South Africa. Um, I have never seen the sort of dehumanization that I have seen at checkpoints getting into and out of the occupied territories. It was never as crude, as blatant, or as vicious in apartheid South Africa. And of course, you know, there were moments when the police and the military murdered vast numbers of people under apartheid South Africa. But on a daily basis, that sort of humiliation, that sort of dehumanization, that sort of treatment um, didn't exist in the same way in South Africa. What do you think the South African experience has to tell us about the one state, two state solution debate? You know, and I suppose what I'm saying here, so so in in Israel Palestine obviously the two state solution i mean it's it, it's being the version of it that that Netanyahu wants is purely bantustan's like he he doesn't want an independent viable palestinian state um but there was also you know liberals in Israel who wanted a two state solution that was more viable you know so you do have partition what we might normally think of as partition was there ever a situation in south africa where there was you know a, a movement of black people who or who said, actually, partition, not in the form of Bantistans, which are sort of these fake states, but some sort of partition where we have um, a black South Africa and a white South Africa might make some sense. Was that ever a, a movement or a position? So that there have been tiny minorities in both communities who've dreamt of that sort of scenario. So in the black community, it has been those, what we used to call the puppet leaders of those Bantustans. They were people who had some credibility in their local area, not much, but some, um, and who, of course, built up this idea of separateness because it meant that they had political and economic power, albeit over this tiny bit of economically desolate territory. Um, but, of course, they had access to patronage, and were very, very corrupt and made a lot of money personally. And of course, in the white community, we, we had this movement even in the lead up to and post the 1994 democratic election of whites who actually declared a little independent white enclave called Orania. And the sort of the standard bearer of this little enclave was the 90 odd year old widow of the architect of apartheid, um, a chap called Hendrik Favut. And she, her name was Betsy Favut. And the sort of, the wind was taken out of their sails when Mandela, as president, went to Orania and visited Betsy Favut and they had a very pleasant tea together. And it sort of disarmed the very small minority that had this utopian vision in their view of, of, a, of a sort of a, a little white state. But no, there was, there was no serious, there, there were attempts, and it's important to, to realize this as we talk about the two-state, one-state issue. There were people in South Africa, in, in, including political scientists, who spoke about what they, and they developed all these appalling names for them, consociational development, 
where different people would have different levels of democratic rights. So you would determine the extent of the the power of your vote dependent on your level of education. And which, you know, when you come from a racist state, it's quite a clever idea because obviously the, the minority... Well, they did in Jim Crow, right? So they sort well, exactly. of reading requirements. Exactly. So, and- so, so there was quite a lot of that. But when it comes to the two-state, one-state solution, and, you know, I was agnostic on this issue for a long time. I found it quite a difficult issue to grapple with. Um, I had similar issues with Zionism because my mother lost many of her family in the Holocaust. Um, And family who survived, my mom survived in Vienna itself, hidden in a cellar for three and a half years. But members of her extended family who survived, actually many of them made their way to Israel after the war and sometimes were reunited with family members they thought had perished. So I, in my in my younger years, I, I found it very difficult and I found the same thing with the two-state and one-state solution. I think the important thing about the two-state solution is that you cannot have real democracy um, if what you're trying to do is divide up a portion of land and give people no rights in your portion of that land. I think to have a democracy, one has to ensure that there are basic rights, there is the same rule of law um, across a geographical area. And certainly latterly, that has made me far more convinced that the only democratic solution for Israel-Palestine is a one-state solution. How politically viable that is and how one gets there I have more trouble figuring out, but I think as an ideal, it is the ideal that I, I, I think it's important for anybody who believes in equality and justice and in non-racism mm. as to strive for. I, I'm personally some, somewhat agnostic because I think if, if you have a fair partition where both states are viable, then you know obviously in Israel with the nation state law still is a racist state, whether or not you have a, an independent Palestine next to it. But, it, you know, it, it, it could potentially be the case that if you have a, a, a fair two-state solution where within the 1967 borders, there is a sort of organic Jewish majority, then they can kind of relax a bit and they don't need to be so, you know, authoritarian with their laws. But I suppose I want to put that to one side because I do think that when it comes to the one state, there are some very interesting comparisons with South Africa. Because, as I say, I'm agnostic. I think both are potential attractive scenarios but the opposition that's always put forward against a one state a sort of democratic one state where there's one person one vote is people say well then the arabs will become a majority and they will make life hell for the israelis and the jews will have to leave now i presume that for a very long time exactly the same thing was said in south africa if we have one person one vote then um uh, the black voters will have a majority they'll elect a black government and they'll make life hell for South African whites. Am I correct in thinking that was the dominant position for a very long time? From the time I was 13 at school, we would have people from the South African military because we had compulsory conscription for all white males come and visit us at school where we had to do cadets, sort of playing soldiers really. And they would say things to us like, you know, on the border, this was the borders with the frontline states in Southern Africa. They say there's a communist behind every bush. That's not true. There are not enough bushes. And this whole mindset of they're coming to take everything you have, your house, your swimming pool, your car, 
they're going to murder your family, rape the women, etc., etc. I found this on the doorstep when I was campaigning for the 1994 election as a member of the ANC, people saying to me, but Mandela is this communist ogre. He is going to destroy us. He's going to drive us into the sea or send us all overseas where we don't belong, etc., etc. So this was a reality of white South African psyche. And the reality of the situation post-1994, I mean, when Mandela came out of prison, even, which was a few years before, people were a bit shocked. You know, this was the ogre. And he just looked like a sort of friendly grandfather type figure. Um, and of course, as, as, as people came to know more and more about him, and, and he devoted his political life, obviously, to the process of reconciliation between white and black in the country, um, a lot of that was broken down. But in the lead up to the 1994 elections, I mean, a lot of white South Africans were stockpiling everything you could imagine down to toilet tissue because they thought this was the end of the world as they knew it. So there were all these remarkable myths that had been created that infused, I mean, an extreme fear amongst a lot of white South Africans and the ease with which that dissipated and was forgotten remains something, you know, South Africa's democratic transition has had enormous challenges. I personally landed up resigning from parliament in protest at my own party. But the ease with which reconciliation took place, the ease with which those white fears were very quickly dissipated, to the extent that unfortunately, a lot of the apartheid era economic status quo has remained into our democratic state and the inequalities between race groups remains profound and a huge challenge to the democratic state. But the only thing I could say in the context of Israel-Palestine is that what politicians in this situation do is exacerbate fears. It is what gives them their power. It is what enables them to build up these extraordinary, what have sometimes been called military industrial complexes, if you will. And they are so damaging because after all, at the end of the day, as we discovered in South Africa, we're all human beings and we actually have so much more in common than the differences we might have that might have developed through our political systems. And I, I, I want to um, get clear sort of the, the process of the transition. So there was this, the first democratic election, as you say, in 1994, where Nelson Mandela stands to be president, the ANC win a massive majority, and, and, and he wins, of course. Um, before that, there was a whites-only referendum, wasn't there, to, to abolish apartheid. So it was the case that the white South Africans did vote to abolish the system which gave them supremacy. Am I correct in thinking that? So we had actually, we had two referenda. People often remember the one, but not the first one. So the first one, which was a few years before the one that you're referring to, was whether we should also have a so-called, and excuse my use of these words, but a so-called um, Asian and colored or people of mixed race chambers in our parliament. So we had a three-chamber parliament wow. where we had a, a white chamber we then had a, a so-called colored chamber, which, which was smaller than the white chamber. 
And then we had an Asian chamber, which was even smaller. And they had sort of more limited powers. Um, and this, again, was to give more of a veneer of democracy. And, of course, the vast majority of the population didn't feature at all, who were black African. Um, but then, yes. And so few, to be clear, that, that, ref, that was a referendum and it won and it passed. And then you did get this very strange system. And of, then we had this really odd system, yeah, because the, the one thing about white South Africans is, and, and we saw it even with Mandela, ironically, is they do like to follow a leader. You know, the idea of this sort of powerful person, man, in all instances, who people just sort of entrust their futures to and their security to. Um, and so if the leader is arguing for something, and of course they have the power of a fairly hegemonic propaganda machinery in terms of all forms of media, um, we only got television in South Africa in 1976, and then it was for an hour a day, we should bear in mind. So, 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 sorry, I know, this is a bit of a detour, <laughs> but that was because the government banned television, did they? Yes, of course. What, because what? this was this was something they couldn't control. They didn't really mm. know what it was. So it was only by 1976 that they'd figured out a way that they could give the white population sort of a little bit of entertainment through television that would in no ways undermine their political hegemony. So we used to have an hour a day of terrible American westerns. There was a western called Shane that I remember watching. And then we got half an hour of news, or they called it news. I mean, that was something of a misnomer. But, I mean, that really just reflects on, on how controlled the media was in the country. So when it came to the referendum that you're referring to, by that point, F.W. de Klerk, who had been the last apartheid president, who really came from the right wing of his party, so he was no moderate at all, he had realized because of a confluence of geopolitical and domestic factors, including crucially economic factors, that apartheid in its current form wasn't going to survive. He also believed, which is not well known, that he would be able to maintain his hold on power. He didn't realize quite how powerful and popular the ANC was. He was getting terrible intelligence, quite clearly. Um, so he thought enough black people would vote for him yes, yes, he that thought, he would still he be in power. He thought all of these moderate black leaders, people like Chief Mangasutu Butelezi, General Bantu Kholomisa, these were all leaders of these ridiculous homelands, a chap called Lucas Mangope. He actually thought that they would have enough support from enough black people in their areas that he would be able to stay on as president. And, if, I mean, you know, it was an absurd calculation, and I don't know how that even entered his head, but, but it did. So he then had this referendum about the way forward, and the way forward resulted in a completely democratic, non-racial election. And the vast majority of whites voted for it, there was some armed resistance by far right-wing groups that opposed it. And Mandela then persuaded the majority of those on the far right to actually form a political party and contest that first white election. And then those far right-wingers tried to ride to the rescue of President Lucas Mangope of Baputatswana, where the notorious Sun City existed when they thought he was under threat. And some of them were actually killed by the Baputatswana Defence Force. 
And I think that put an end to that sort of far right wing extremist resistance. But yes, so there was a resist, there was a referendum, there was an opportunity for white South Africans to effectively say, okay, we're going to go with this. But that was because F.W. de Klerk, who they saw as fairly right wing, was saying to them, all of your privileges will effectively be maintained. And was he right? He wasn't right. I mean, that, well, that look, was a lot of South Africa, white South Africans privileges have been maintained. You know, the country still feels remarkably separate in, in the wealthier, more affluent areas of the country. The vast majority of people living there are white and a, and a tiny minority of, of black South Africans who are now part of the ruling elite or have made their way into business at the upper reaches of the economy. The economic status quo has largely remained in place. Um, but the sort of more obvious and pernicious aspects of the apartheid state have obviously dissipated and the legal dimensions of it. So we are legally a non-racial democracy in South Africa, but the economic consequences are going to take many generations, unfortunately, to to work through. And I, suppose, I want to get clear about how apartheid fell. What were the pressures that made it happen and sort of see what we might be able to learn or sort of infer when it comes to, to Israel-Palestine. So I, I'm going to put forward sort of a very sort of crude schema and to say for apartheid to end, sort of three things happened. So one was that the international community decided, um, sort of led by civil society from the bottom up, um, that apartheid South Africa was no longer tenable. Um, the Cold War ending sort of helped sort of Western governments feel like, oh, it was now safe to have an alternative to apartheid South Africa. So there's this, this outside force, which is boycotting South Africa, putting sanctions on South Africa, sort of saying you are not actually part of the family of, of nations. Um, then inside South Africa, you've got sort of part of the um, resistance to apartheid, which is making it disruptive and costly to continue with this system. And then you also have this third force, which I suppose Mandela is now sort of seen as the figurehead of, which is um, people within black South Africa sort of saying to white South Africa, you don't have to fear us anymore. You know, you uh, uh, a system whereby we have one person, one vote won't mean the end of decent lives for white people in South Africa. So you've got these sort of three different pressures. And one might suggest that those three different pressures are what we might need to see in Israel-Palestine if ever we're going to get to something remotely just. I don't know. I think I think I, th I think that's a good that's a good parallel in the situation. There were a few extra factors in South Africa's case. There was a huge military defeat in Angola, which basically ended the apartheid state strategy, which was to effectively pacify the so-called frontline states, the black majority-controlled states to our north. Um, and a defeat at a, at a place called Kuto Kinevali by a combination of the Angolan and Cuban forces, um, which just resulted in so many white South African casualties that it was unsustainable, was very important. Um, the fall of the Soviet Union, as, as you say, extremely important because the ANC was strongly aligned with the Soviet Union and the Soviet satellite states. A lot of our support came from that. Um, a lot of our leadership was trained in those countries. Um, those things were very important. But I, I think the two most important factors were the global pressure. And the reason I think it was so important is there is absolutely no doubt, and I experienced this at first hand when we went into government because I worked on this sort of economics and finance side, we inherited a complete mess of an economy. 
and the quality of life of white South Africans started to disintegrate. And that was the point of no return. I think F.W. de Klerk realized that. But the other thing was that South Africa had been made, many parts of the country, the black townships, the squatter settlements, etc., etc., were effectively rendered ungovernable. Because what the apartheid state had done very cleverly, they raised any money that was going to be spent on those areas in those areas. So they were the only ones allowed to sell alcohol, for instance, in townships. And they used that revenue to administer those townships and for the police and military that were required to pacify those townships. When the process of ungovernability started and no administrators or police or army could make their way into those townships after a while, that whole model broke down as well. So that was very important. And then just one thing to add to the engagement between white and black South Africans. Two processes there started very interestingly. In the early 80s, some cabinet ministers started speaking to Mandela secretly while he was in prison, and they moved him off Robben Island onto the mainland and into a house on a prison ground where ministers could meet with him without anybody knowing. At the same time, there was an extraordinary civil society organization that started bringing together business people and other sort of opinion formers and leaders in white South Africa with ANC leadership who were in exile. They started meeting particularly in Senegal, in Dakar. And I think that broke down some barriers as well. It created other problems that we've experienced post-democracy. But in terms of how we get to a transition, I think that was also very important. Is that role of business leaders is really interesting because essentially that was because it became so costly to do business in South Africa because of the external sanctions and boycotts that it, it became the case that actually businesses in South Africa became a force to end apartheid. Absolutely. And this is really crucial in the Israel-Palestine situation because what you had, business people in South Africa had made huge amounts of money and we basically had five industrial conglomerates that controlled everything. And they had a very close partnership and relationship with the apartheid state and they made their money out of that state. It was when they realized that their avenues for profitability had been extinguished. They couldn't expand overseas. The global anti-apartheid movement and the BDS movement against South Africa had meant that the cost of capital, the cost of money for them to expand their businesses, the cost of South Africans' foreign exchange, which was required to provide oil and various other things to keep the economy going, increased massively when students boycotted Barclays Bank in the United Kingdom and Chase Manhattan Bank in the United States of America, who were the two leading banks who provided South Africa with finance. And at that point, to maintain profitability levels, South African business, both English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking, which was a divide in the white community, required a political settlement and actually became actors in this process that led to the political settlement. So it was that sort of boycott sanctions or BDS movement. I mean, it's, it's, people know what that means now. <laughs> boycott, divestment, sanctions. That's what basically brought white-owned businesses to the table and they became a force for you know, abolishing apartheid, whereas presumably they were very much in favour of it, right? It gave them black, cheap labour. Oh, of course. Uh, it meant that you know, the, yeah. the, everyone thought the ANC were communists, so it kept the left out. It, it was sort of win-win oh, until the sanctions were... And, and the growth of unions. I mean, the union movement in South Africa, which was deeply political, understandably, 
and had been banned for many years, sort of redeveloped in various forms. And that exerted a pressure on, on business leadership as well. So there was that internal and external pressure, but it was the economic pressure in from both directions that was absolutely crucial in forcing everybody to the negotiating table effectively. We're gonna take a quick break now. If you're on the free feed, this will be the end of the episode. Um, if you are on the paid feed, um, we are gonna talk for um, uh, another half hour or so. Um, some big topics were the ANC more like Hamas or Fatah. Um, do the Palestinians need to find a Nelson Mandela? Can the BDS campaign against Israel ever be as successful as the BDS campaign against South Africa? If not, why not? And we're also going to talk about the historical relations between Israel and apartheid South Africa. Um, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. It's only £3 a month. There's a free trial on there as well. So if you just want to listen um, to this, this one episode, you can sign up for the free trial, listen to this, and then you can cancel it. I hope you don't know, because there are lots of um, great episodes in the series. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design. <laughs>